Hey, I'm Kamara Rose, and this is Everyday Changemakers, conversations with social change practitioners about the journey of personal transformation and social transformation. We all have something to say. We are vessels of truth-telling. And the work of knowing what the truths we have to tell are and the delivery of those messages to the world, that's beautiful, sacred, 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 sacred work. And if we took that assignment seriously, each one of us, the life-dealing truths, sometimes they come in the form of confessions, it would be poetry, it would feel like art, it would feel like ritual and prayer, and I think we would value our existence. This week, I'm talking with Mackie Alston, the Senior Vice President of Creative and Prophetic Leadership at Auburn Seminary, which trains bold and resilient leaders with tools and resources for our multi-faith world. Mackie is also an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Mackie came of age in the height of the AIDS crisis. In 1987, when he was graduating from Columbia University, his contemporary art professor took Mackie and one of his friends downtown to a coalition meeting of ACT UP, which was in its first year of formation. I was 20, I was gay, and AIDS was everywhere in New York City. I had never walked into a room of queer people I had avoided, out of fear, gay bars and queer dances at Columbia. So I walked into the room at the what was then called the Lesbian Gay Community Center down on 13th Street. And there were 200 folk packed in to organize. And what I experienced there in the face of death, in the context of death, with many people who were diagnosed as dying, was a kind of joy, community, life, pure life, like the Deuteronomistic, choose life, not death, blessing, not curse. And that was a revelation because it was the opposite image that the media was saturated with in regard to the fate of gay people in 1987. So the paradigm shift from denial of who I was and avoidance of contact with those who were at greatest risk the strategy of self-protection fell away, and instead I just wanted to be there with them, among them. I wanted to be them. I wanted to be myself. I wanted to be who God has made me to be, queer. And from that context, my whole life was born. Before walking into that ACT UP meeting, Mackie had tried to avoid being seen by society as gay. He didn't want to be expelled from tribe. When not only your your family teaches you that it's abominable to be gay, but your church teaches you that your maker believes that you're abominable if you're gay. You're very creator. And we learn that from birth. It's amazing that there's some life source that says, no, that's not true. I'm beloved. That here's a different gospel or good news. I'm a beloved child of God. I'm, I am made in the image of God. Stepping into that space, into that room, into that radical space, it really was like Judy Garland stepping out of Kansas, black and white, and into Oz, full color. 
You know, it meant that I could show up at Northwest Orient Airlines, what it was called at the time, with six ragtag friends protesting the fact that they wouldn't fly people with AIDS. And within the week, read on the cover of the New York Times that the airline had changed its policy because of bad press. A bunch of children, really, or young people, acting up. That made me think, oh my gosh, well, if my actions, what I do with this body, can make a difference, what will I do with this life? with his one wild and precious life. Two years into his work with ACT UP, Mackey decided to leave art history and go to seminary. His friends joked that he was going into the family business because his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all progressive Presbyterian ministers down south. But I thought, well, all right, given that the church seems to be on the wrong side of every issue I care about, I thought, I'm going to single-handedly dismantle the institution that was the source of the ideology of my oppression. In seminary, Mackey studied under Dr. James Cohn, the pioneer of black liberation theology, and with the feminist Bible scholar, Dr. Phyllis Tribble. And, you know, they basically said, sit down, child, you know, we can help you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in my seminary dorm room, I began to glean for beauty everywhere I went and glue the pictures to the walls of my room. Basically, I surrounded myself in beauty, even as I was sure I was going to die of AIDS. My best friend died of AIDS from seminary, Alan Smith. It was just everywhere. We were all getting tested and not getting tested, knowing the verdict already. It was a theological verdict. It was a political verdict, social verdict, familial verdict and an internalized verdict of death. This is the wage of sin. And so a practice for my life has been surrounding myself with things that are beautiful in order to remember beauty in the face of the Trump administration, for example, or the level of suffering in communities near and far. And what I love about religious work and about social change work is I think we're called to two things. We're called to call out injustice and name the ugliness, the evil. And we're called to envision the world as it should be. The beauty, the joy, the pleasure. I do think that joy, celebration, pleasure, love are powerful acts of resistance. And while there are times we are so devastated that that's not accessible, still, they're within our means Irresistible revolution is our only, is our highest, is our best strategy for winning. (laughs) Because when our movement work is boring or brutal, enough of us don't want to be a part of it. And where it seems ravishing and life-giving, that's where it goes to scale. Hey, everyone. I'm taking a quick break here to offer you an assignment, should you choose to take it. And that assignment, to take a page from Mackie, is try surrounding yourself with beauty. You can, like Mackie, tear pages from magazines, or if you want to get digital, use Pinterest, to remind yourself of beauty and what brings you joy and pleasure. You can go somewhere that you find beautiful, 
even if it's down the street. And you can think about bringing beauty to your work for change. Are there ways that you can make your work with communities more beautiful? With art or poetry or song or something else? So that's your homework if you want the extra credit. Okay, now back to Mackie. Today, Mackie leads and manages training in creative activism. He works with and learns from leaders across the country who are working to capture the public imagination through social protest by marrying creativity and activism. One of the practices that was the most breathtaking to me that we stumbled upon that I recommend people try. We were doing work in Chicago. It was 2013. Marriage equality had won in a bunch of states across the country. And the sort of marriage equality circus was coming to Illinois. And there was a strategy to get black clergy to stand for marriage equality because it was clear that the right was trying to create a rift between the black community and the queer community. And one round of losing in Illinois had been a train wreck in this regard because the nationals and the locals had asked black clergy to stand for marriage equality, and they did. And then after the loss, the black community was blamed monolithically for having an anti-LGBT stance. And so there was a a growing rift within progressive organizing in Illinois and Chicago. And black queer people were really being rendered invisible in the fight. The fight was covered in the media as black straight people against white queer people. So we partnered with leaders in Chicago and Illinois to try to repair the breach or build community, particularly within the black community of Chicago. Mackey and his team worked with about 10 organizers in Illinois to design a program called Table to Action. They invited folks from black church communities, Muslim communities, queer communities, and people from the intersections of those communities to the table. First session was a dinner, a long, beautiful dinner table, just Gorgeous nighttime, beautiful room. We did it at Chicago Theological Seminary. People went around and were asked to finish this prompt, to say a sentence. My name is Mackie, and I long for a city where. And people were encouraged to get real specific. I long for a city where you know my grandmother and the touch of her hand. I long for a city where me and my girlfriend, Sheila, are sitting on the porch doing theology and our kids are running around and we're drinking lemonade and eating the most delicious fruit. Hell, we have a porch. And as people did that, well, A, they saw each other, but during the meal, we had a Auburn's poet in residence, Sabrina Haim Ladani, and a poet from Chicago, from the communities that were represented at the table, craft from everybody's responses, a poem, not changing their words, but stitching their words together with some repetition and rhythm. And the last closing ritual was Sabrina and this other poet doing spoken word poetry, reading it out. And the room could have died. They couldn't believe that what they had said was art, was so beautiful. And that their words 
weren't diminished, weren't changed, weren't altered, were beautiful, but also could be stitched into this collective vision of the world healed, of the way the world should be. And in fact, that nobody's response was dehumanizing of another person, that that wasn't what they longed for in the city, a city where you don't get to belong. That wasn't anybody's sharing. Instead, all of these different visions of what the city ought to be like were compatible, at least in the context of this poem. That was beautiful. And we've used that practice very easy. I've done it. You know, you don't have to be a professional poet to spend a little time on a lunch break and knit it together. I've done it recently in Colorado with a multi-faith group focused on justice. And folks just love it because people feel seen, feel like art. And the, their image of beauty is lifted up in collective. And that feels, it just feels great. What do you feel like you witnessed in people seeing that vision that they had and how, like you said, it could all coexist and fit together? Did you witness something shift among people as a result of that? I wonder if you could just describe. I really do think that we're taught to believe that there isn't enough for everybody. And I think that the, the radical theologies or meaning systems are teaching us that there's room for all, that in fact we may not rest, you know, when it's free until everybody's free, that freedom and liberation is a collective enterprise. And there's something, something about that particular revelation that is a healing. Because I think on the one hand, we know that that's the way it ought to be. And on the other hand, it's the Hunger Games. On the other hand, it's Survivor. On the other hand, it's American Idol. On the other hand, it's the schoolyard. It's the Muslim ban. It's either you or me. And it's not going to be me. In the wake of Trump's election, Mackey wrote, Here we are again, stunned, whispering in twos and threes via text, in office kitchens, swapping lines from poetry as if we were in Fahrenheit 451 or some sci-fi movie in which we can be arrested, deported, disappeared for having a heart. In the full blog post, which you can find in the show notes, Mackey turns to the poem September 1, 1939 by W.H. Auden, which begins... All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. What I love about Auden in that poem is the embodiment of the capacity to do evil or to do good, to be the liar or the truth teller. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. We, we all have something to say. We are vessels of truth telling and lying, and the work of knowing what the truths we have to tell are, and the delivery of those messages to the world, that's beautiful, sacred, 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 sacred work. And if we took that assignment seriously, each one of us, the life-dealing truths, sometimes they come in the form of confessions, it would be poetry, it would feel like art, it would feel like ritual and prayer, and I think we would value our existence. Hey everyone, 
I'm taking a quick break here to let you know about our guest for the next episode of Everyday Changemakers, Rodney McKenzie. Rodney is an organizer, movement leader, and an out person of faith who is now the VP of Campaigns and Partnerships at Demos, a public policy organization dedicated to creating an America where we all have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. The principle of having authority in your life means to actually be the author of your life. To be the author of your life means to retell stories, recast and reimagine the meaning of them. I become not the victim of the story, I become the victor of the story. That level of authority is a profound truth and a profound teaching that I think transforms everything in our lives. Listen to the next episode of Everyday Changemakers to hear Rodney's journey of remembering who he is, who God is, and how Rodney works to support others to wake up to the truth of their own goodness. Okay, now back to Mackie. At Auburn, Mackie focuses on prophetic witness training leaders to use their voices in the media, to shape their narratives for the people they want to move, and to frame the critical questions of our day. I think our deepest fear often is tied up in the notion that we have no value. Sometimes that's what we're taught. Sometimes that's what we lead ourselves to believe. And that's not true. And then it comes back to my experience as a documentary filmmaker. What I have come to know and believe is that I could make an Academy Award-winning documentary about anybody on Earth at any age. Because in fact, to be human at all is epic. To have survived to the age of three, I have kids. My kids are 11 and almost 15. Sixth grade and ninth grade, remember those years. The kind of suffering people go through, as well as liberation, transformation, that life is just, it's a microcosm. You know, God is up in that business. And so, in as much as every life is sacred, and in, in as much as everybody's story is epic if we honor it, I think that that's ultimately powerful to me. And can you just speak a little bit about, in the work you do, coaching people, really combating this idea of, like, you're not valuable or your story is not valuable? I'm just wondering, for people who are listening and are like longing to tell their own story or their own truth in some way, or they work with others and they want to bring an exercise or a practice that gives people maybe the courage to step into that space. But I wonder if there's any super practical, even technical, but how you sometimes help people to tell that truth or to tell their story. The work of the media, the work of communication, of being an effective communicator, I believe is all about being you. I think that the secret is that the people who are successful in media are people who have found ways to be themselves publicly. So when you think of some of the eccentric folk who work well in the media, a lot of the late night folk, others who really are willing to let it all hang out, Oprah, Ellen, Rosie, I feel like the trick is to be authentic and uninhibited, 
just to show up. Respectful, but yourself. How do you do that? My favorite way is to storytell, because I believe that when we tell stories, our very beings, in a sense, are constituted in the narrative architecture, so that when I tell the story, when I even anticipate telling the story like I just did, of walking into the room of ACT UP in 1987, I'm transported, and I know who I am in that space. When I think of the moment where I first met my daughter Alice, when she was 13 days old, she's 14 now, in a Tucson, Arizona parking lot, and met her birth mom, who was 17, who pulled in right next to me, coincidentally, in the parking lot, in an aquamarine pickup truck, and looked at me and smiled and knew who I was, and put Alice in my arms. I can talk about that moment when I became a parent. I can talk about it in terms of so many things, what it means to be queer family, issues of race, class, and immigration, and the very tenor of my voice. It's transformed, and that's what story does. Then the third thing I would recommend is decide what you want to say ahead of time and try it out on a friend who has your best interest in mind or colleague. Because sometimes we think of what we're going to say ahead of time, but don't try it out. And there are double entendres or ways in which the words that sound right in your brain land on the listener that aren't what you meant. Better to figure that out ahead of time. Another one is know who your audience is. You know, I was a hospice chaplain when I was at seminary, and I worked on the cancer ward at Beth Israel Hospital downtown, and the way I was with an 8-year-old who was living with cancer on the ward, or an 80-year-old, was completely different. And my message might have been the same thing. You're loved. I'm here. You're not alone. But my very body language, tone of my voice, the words I would offer up, stories I might tell would be totally different. And so remember when you do prophetic witness that you're talking to somebody and you're likely to talk differently to different kinds of folks. So be intentional. And then the last recommendation I have to offer for now is I was at a coffee shop with Bill Moyers and the Reverend Dr. James Forbes, who was the senior pastor at Riverside Church at the time. And I was doing some work with Dr. Forbes, helping him with his media work, and Bill Moyers was a congregant of his and was really invested in Dr. Forbes's voice being amplified as a pastor to the nation. And Bill Moyers said something that I'll never forget, and that was that he determines in any given season of his career what his primary movement goal, communications goal was. And maybe it was something like, poverty is the number one crisis we face in America today, and it's a solvable problem. And he said to Dr. Forbes and to me, so then what I do is, he made television at the time, every episode would have as the moral to its story that. Every time I gave a public address, every time I, he said, sent out an e-blast to my constituency, every time I did an op-ed, every time I took an interview in the press, I was trying to move that needle. And in so doing, I was concentrating my prophetic energy to move one mountain, given how difficult it is to move a mountain. And yeah, he would have episodes on, for example, prison industrial complex, or living wage, or abortion, or LGBT equality. But he could do all of those stories with a focus on poverty and ending poverty, all of them. 
It would be an angle. And I think we can do that. I think often clergy do that. Often organizers do that. But it's only after I learned, listened to Bill Moyers name that strategy that I began to do it, even in my life, as almost a spiritual practice. What do I care about most right now? And frankly, for me, it is that I believe that when we marry art and activism, there's an opportunity to manifest irresistible revolution in a way that I think is most likely to win justice, the justice for which we long, and bring the world for which we long into being. Because not only is it compelling, but it's a manifestation of that very world. And so when we are in joy, in movement, for the collective good, we even feel what it's going to taste like. We taste. It's a taste. That's what I'm trying to move in this season. And you know when the season's ended and there's a new point of the compass. Well, then I'm wondering if in closing you want to offer, it could be a prayer, it could be an intention, but in this season, with that intention that you're bringing, what is it that you want to manifest? So I'm going to read something I wrote. You have something to say that we need to know. You were not born for nothing. In you, in the terrific, singular way life has shaped you, there is a truth that is yours to tell. You may say, not me. You may think, what I have done in this lifetime is to follow orders well. Not true. There's an undercurrent. You dream. You have something to say that we need to hear. I was the one at the table whose comments always disappointed. I was the one who never glittered. But like a geode, somehow even I knew that deeper within was a hall of chandeliers that dazzled the place God designed. Beauty beyond all estimation. Who I really am. Now, for the past set of years, my job has been to be a prophet whisperer. I have washed the feet and the words of the visionaries of our time, listening them into their small, still voice, teasing it out into a roar. I'm also a documentary filmmaker. My job has been to do justice to each real person I filmed, to get inside that inner chamber with my camera and return with the footage that reveals God's truth about the grandeur of each unique soul. Smash a hammer to the geode that is you. Shine a light on what is most beautiful, heartbreaking, and real for you in life and in your heart. Then let this vision be known. Let us be made right, made whole. Be dazzled by your truth. If you don't, something better than diamonds, than all Rembrandts, will go eternally unnoticed. God, blaming no one but God's self, will ransack rooms in heaven with rage. I don't know exactly why, but life has taught me this. There's healing if you do. Flowers will bloom from your palms. Your curved spine will uncurl like a stem straightened by the sun. <laughs> 
Yes, it may also kill you, or we may kill you, when you tell the truth about us all. But better to live in the light of truth than to never live at all. Better for you and for us, I mean. Tell me the truth. What is it? I need to know. Amen. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for asking me to offer up my truth. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review the show in iTunes and share this episode with friends, family, and colleagues who you think would enjoy it. Everyday Changemakers is a production of yours truly in collaboration with Mark Media. You can find me at kamarrose.com.